Ambos is an all-encompassing medical student platform written by doctors that combines a comprehensive library with over 8,000 concise articles with a multiple QBank with over 5,000 multiple choice questions in the form of clinical case scenarios. The entire platform is filled with great learning features that will help to enhance your studies. Ambos comes along with two mobile apps and a great Enki add-on that you can download for free. If you have not used Ambos yet, you can sign up for a free five-day trial on ambos.com to study smarter, not harder. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the AMSA Global Health Chat. And this week, we have a wonderful guest with us. It's Dr. Nick Walsh, who has done some amazing work, work with WHO, uh, specifically in infectious diseases and we we are now chatting with him. I'd like to um, welcome you to our podcast, Dr. Walsh. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for the opportunity to share. Awesome. So would you mind telling us a bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a doctor. Uh, I, I went to New South Wales Uni uh, and then did physician training, specialising in... Um, in public health addiction medicine, um, ended up doing a PhD in epidemiology and infectious disease, which those uh, those those skills gave me the opportunity to work in Asia, uh, running a medical center in Cambodia for a few years, and then joining uh, WHO in, in the Western Pacific in the Americas, and now with um, with Geneva. I'm based in Australia now, working with the National Critical Care Trauma Response Center in Darwin. It's wonderful. Wow. Yeah, sounds amazing. An amazing career so far. Um, so Dr. Walsh, could you tell us a little bit about what started your sort of passion and interest in global health? Well, when I was, um, when I was at uni, I, I took a year off to do an honours uh, year uh, at New South Wales. We had the opportunity to do that. And I... Uh, spent that year at the University of California in San Diego working in uh, molecular epidemiology, uh, respiratory physiology with an Australian actually researcher named by the, by the name of John West, who's well known in, 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 in respiratory physiology circles. You know, they were doing some incredible work with uh, in high altitude physiology. He was a physiologist that uh, supported Edmund Hillary in his expeditions to Mount Everest. They were also sending uh, uh, ex experiments in space shuttle, um, looking at the effect of microgravity and in respiratory uh, you know, physiology. I think that was probably the first time that I realized there was an incredible world out there. The second was, you know, when I finished medicine, I had the opportunity to uh, get a DFAT scholarship to spend almost a year in Vietnam working in HIV prevention uh, in Ho Chi Minh City. And, you know, I realized there was so much to do out there. So, and then coming back to doing physician training, I always wanted to sort of have an impact. So um, those are probably the seminal moments. Are there any particular stories or moments that you've had um, that really inspired you to advocate for global health issues? Well, you know, there's been, there's been many. Uh, I remember being in Mongolia when I was working with WHO uh, and we, we, uh, we were asked, we did a, a joint mission with the US CDC 
um, to, to do a situation and response analysis on Mongolia's uh, epidemic of hepatitis. So Mongolia's got about 4 million, 3 million people. They had about 7% uh, of the population with hep C. They had about 12% of the population with hep B. And I remember going there. We met with the uh, uh, National Center for Communicable Disease Directors. Uh, there were several of us in the team. In fact, we had someone from the National Cancer Institute from NIH and in, in the States as well. And uh, we, we, uh, we knew the data. We knew, for example, in, in, in Mongolia, 200,000 people were living with hepatitis C. And we asked them, well, how many people have you treated? Well, they said, you know, between 2010 and 2014, this is late, late 2014, there's been 36 people treated for hepatitis C. This is a country where, which had the highest incidence of liver cancer in the world. It affected every family, yet only 36 people had received treatment. And so in combination of all of the interventions over the next couple of years, the following couple of years, uh, you know, today they've treated, you know, over 50,000 people, 70,000 people maybe for hep C, they've tested about a third of the population. Um, so it's, you know, been a really transformative um, a series of, 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 of interventions in, in that country. But, you know, I think that seeing the, the, the situation so desperate and the response so meek, you know, that repeated in a number of different countries. And, and that for me is, is why I work in the area. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that's a really, uh, that 36 people, that's almost, that's really shocking. Unbelievable. Unacceptable. Yeah, unbelievable. yeah exactly. Exactly. And um, so you mentioned your work with the WHO. Could you tell us a little bit about how that got started? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's people often ask, you know, how do you get into WHO? <laughs> uh, the, the, when it where it really started was at at, at uni, um, I, I worked at a bunch of takeaway stores and pizza shops and all that uh, in my early uni days. And and then I thought when I got to about fifty, I thought I better get a job that's sort of relevant to health. I happened to be in Western Sydney, and uh, there was a you know there was a heroin epidemic uh, going on out there, and and I and I. Uh, I managed to get in contact with a, uh, a lady by the name of Lisa Ma, who's still a professor at UNSW, who um, uh, said, uh, 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 well, she, she allowed me to sort of come out with her one night uh, working with Indo-Chinese injection drug users um, and do, continue to do street work out there. Um, I, I then worked on a needle syringe program in my final year or two at university at and uh, you know, got interested in that side of things, and and so um, when I completed uni, uh, I, I got into drug treatment, uh, and I on 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 moving down from Darwin to Melbourne, started working in an addiction community centre, run by a, a guy called Nick Crofts, uh, who's a professor of uh, at the University of Melbourne. He uh, had a very strong connection to WHO globally and in, in hepatitis C in particular, and he. Uh, um, he was the one that really put me in contact with them. I, uh, uh, he was to uh, go to Sierra, which is the Southeast Asian Regional Office of, in, in India of WHO to, to work on some guidelines there. Unfortunately, he went on a long flight and got a DVT and ended up in ICU. And he, he asked me 
he said, well, Nick, can you go instead of me? And so I went and, and I participated in that and, and I, I, and they were happy with the work that I did. And then they asked me to do another job and, you know, that was sent for peer review around the world. And, and then, you know, other people noticed and then it sort of cascaded. So, you know, it was a little bit of serendipity, um, but, you know, you need to have a network, but, you know, you really need to deliver as well, a good product. Yeah. But it seems like it was just meant to be and that a lot of things led you to global health um, in different areas. Uh, what do you think are some of the big hurdles in combating um, hepatitis B and, and hepatitis C worldwide? Well, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about political will. You see um, the COVID response, you know, when countries really want to do it, it can't be done. Um, you have 400 million people living with hepatitis across the world. You have, you know, some, you know, 300 and, well, 300 million with Hep B and you have about 70 million with Hep C. Uh, and, uh, you know, only maybe 10%, maybe a little bit more of people have been treated for Hep C. Uh, yet we've got drugs that can cure. Uh, those drugs are expensive in many places. See what's happening in, in Egypt. You know, they had that 100 million uh, project uh, which was to screen the entire population for Hep C, blood pressure, and and diabetes. And they were able to, able to do it, uh, you know. And so it's all about political will. Um, and there hasn't been the political emphasis. The other thing is, of course, you know, with COVID, uh, people die reasonably quickly. Hepatitis C, hepatitis B, kill people over decades. So, you know, that reduces the political will. The other thing is that uh, political will is a function of many things. And in many countries, there's not the uh, advocacy. Uh, people who are affected don't have money to advocate for their situation. And so uh, they lack the, the voice. And so there's not the pressure on governments to act. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, that idea of sort of depoliticizing global health or sort of decolonizing global health. Um, I mean, I guess this is a big question, but is there a way to, to do just that? Or, you know, is there, does there need to be a balance between, you know, political action as well as depoliticizing? I feel like there needs to be some sort of balance, but um, yeah, if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. How do you get things to happen? Uh, how do you make things happen in global health in different countries? Well, it's really context specific. You know, if we go back to Mongolia, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the government that at the time was very keen to act. We, they had a young, dynamic uh, vice minister of health uh, and who himself had an interest in, in, in hepatology. And, you know, he was keen to act. But of course, you know, that government got voted out eventually. Uh, and so then it becomes a partisan issue. How, how do you de-partisanize? How do you... Take it out of that partisan conversation. Well, what we did was we worked directly with the parliament there such that the parliamentary committees uh, were able to look at the data that we produced uh, and adopt it as a, a non-partisan or bipartisan or multi-partisan issue. You know, and so it didn't matter if the government changed, the parliament still had a vested interest in seeing national action. So I think, you know, that's really key. The other thing is, if people talk about, you know, you've got to let the data speak. Well, epidemiological data is important, but at the end of the day, you've got to demonstrate numbers and that means money. What we've done in a num number of countries is use mathematical modeling. We published on this 
to demonstrate what's the return on investment if the government invests invest this, how much money will they save over time with the different uh, strategies? We did this in China. Uh, that we published that in Clinical Infectious Disease. We did mathematical modeling with the with Imperial College in London, demonstrating the effect of investing in comprehensive hepatitis B treatment, uh, putting it in on the insurance uh, scheme in China. 75 million people live with Hep B in China. And we were able to demonstrate that there was a good return on investment, even in the uh, medium term, if they took a comprehensive approach to you know, immunization, early diagnosis and treatment for hep B in China, such that uh, China included the hep B treatment in their national health insurance scheme. And, uh, you know, for the 75 million people living with uh, hepatitis B over there. So that was transformative. So, you know, mathematical modeling and, and the use of, you know, budget numbers, uh, the use of economic data, economic analysis, economic impact analysis mm. to demonstrate the effect of what you're advocating for is super powerful. Wow, that, that's awesome. And like linking so many different skill sets. And, and when you talk about it like that, it, it makes you realize how like it's not just doctors working in global health. It's like a whole really diverse team. And that like incredible that you're able to convince governments to prioritize health issues um, like that. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about what it has been like working in different countries? Like as an Australian, how have you found there have been places where um, it was easier to work or like harder to work and, and why? Yeah, well, uh, I'll just sort of talk about the different countries. Uh, you know, living and working in Vietnam was was challenging. Uh, I learned how the Vietnamese were able to win the, the that war. The, and, uh, you know, they say that they were able to fight off a thousand years of, of Chinese occupation, 300 of French and, and the Americans. Uh, you can see they're very determined. Uh, you know, so there was a lot of conservative, a conservatism there. And so that was difficult. Um, but at the same time, the governmental structure meant when there was a change in policy, you could really act. Um, you know, when I lived in, in Cambodia, running that uh, international medical center there, you know, that was a completely different experience. It was an oligarchy there. Uh, we had needed to be connected to the oligarchs, uh, obviously to make things run, but we also needed to be able to provide high quality international standard medical care. At the same time, we needed to, we were trying to support other, you know, hospitals or non-government agencies in order to increase the quality of care there. So, you know, there were some challenges. Um, it's obviously a dangerous place at times as well. When I, you know, moved into to, to Manila, um, you know, that, that was, that was a, it was a challenging country to work in the Philippines. Uh, China, we worked a lot with China, and, and China is very complex, uh, very politically complex. Uh, we work closely with US CDC, uh, China CDC, but it's really about who you know and, and how ideas travel through the political system there. When I moved to the States um, and worked in, in, in South America, uh, you know, that's obviously a different uh, case. Uh, you know, we were working in Spanish. Uh, which added a, a degree of difficulty. Working with the Brazilian government depended on who was in power. Um, you know, Bra Brazil's got a very diverse um, uh, health system, uh, the country, it's a very diverse country. Some great things can't have been accomplished, but obviously they're, you know, they're feeling the heat at the moment. When you go to, we were working in El Salvador and Guatemala, very dangerous places, uh, very corrupt. 
Um, so that was really difficult. Um, so I think every country has its um, uh, has its uh, challenges. You know, there are cultural, there are language challenges, and then you've got to understand how decisions are made. Who are the people that you need to get on board? Who do you have to meet with? Who do you have to develop relationships with in order to affect change? So I think it's complex, um, but language and culture are critical to getting inside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was wondering, speaking of, you know, language and culture, do you think cultural backgrounds or cultural differences between countries have big impacts on the way they prioritise global health issues within those respective countries? Absolutely. I mean, if you look, you know, one thing I, I, I didn't appreciate to the extent I appreciate now is the, the, the hierarchy, uh, a cultural hierarchy that different cultures have. So we're pretty egalitarian here in Australia. Now there's not a lot of distance between the top and the bottom. Uh, we think of ourselves as, as egalitarian, I suppose. Um, you know, but when you go to Vietnam or Cambodia and particularly in Latin America as well, I underestimated the amount of hierarchy and power distance in the culture. So mm. it is not appropriate. You're not gonna get very far uh, in, in, in parts of Asia if you are speaking the egalitarian language that we use here in Australia, it's just not gonna work um, because it is a hierarchical culture and you do have to have respect up and, and there is unfortunately some submission, um, you know, further down the chain. Uh, so you do decisions, people are not going to be able to make decisions if they're not at the right level in the in the uh, hierarchy. So you do have to go to the decision maker, which is often the very top. And that's also the case in South America or in Latin America. So I think that the problem is, in terms of the priorities of global health, that the person at the top doesn't always have the information, they don't have the background, the professional background, to be able to be fully informed. And it's difficult for people in a hierarchical system to inform the boss or the boss's boss about what really needs to be done if they don't need to be done, because mm -hmm. they don't have the data doesn't have the power. It's really about opinion. So I think that, you know, that is probably the lesson that I learned, uh, that you really have to understand who's making the decision, who's in power, and you need to bring that the information to that particular person in the right way, such that face can be preserved, such that they can have be empowered in order to get the people below them or the system that they run to operate or be oriented in 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 the right way in terms of the global health priorities. Awesome. Yeah, I I was really interested in your work that you've done in Australia. And I was wondering if you would be able to comment a bit about how you, like in terms of you, you've done work in Darwin and how um, in a country that is so developed and has access to so many different things, how do you fit, like how does it fit in with what you've seen in other parts of the world in terms of, um, you know, our, um, the mortality and morbidity um, of in, Indigenous Australians is, is disgracefully high and and so like how does that um, fit in with what you've seen well yes it's absolutely totally unacceptable in a country you know per capita wealth highest or second highest in the world i mean it's absolutely unacceptable when i was in fifth year in in, in at uni uh we had a, a gp term it was only two weeks i decided to go to do that uh, in primary care in Volcania and Western New South Wales, and I arrived in Wilcannia uh, and uh, yeah, mainly Indigenous uh, 
community or town uh, of a few thousand individuals. And the average age of death at, at, at that time was 42. Not the life expectancy, but the average age of death. And that was obviously because it was suicides and a bunch of other issues of people were dying very young. Now, this was a town a thousand kilometers west from Sydney, of Sydney, where the average, you know, where life expectancy was, you know, 80. And how, how was it possible, you know, that this could occur you know, so close, geographically close together? And I, you know, I got interested in that. I went up to Darwin. Uh, and I was a renal reg at, at Royal Darwin Hospital. Got to uh, go to Indigenous communities for that. We ended up setting some uh, with a, a colleague called Lee Chin, uh, setting up some scabies eradication programs in different communities, Wadair in the east, uh, in, the, in the west, and then in Groot Island and Nubuwar and in Arnhem Land. Uh, look, but you know, how is it that scabies was endemic in indigenous communities so in, in 2021, you know, syphilis, all these things, uh, or at the time it wasn't 2021, it was a few years ago, but nevertheless, it was not that long ago, uh, and it continues to be. So one of the most interesting experiences I had was that year I did spend in, in Ho Chi Minh City. I spent about, you know, nine months in Ho Chi Minh City, and I spent three months in Arnhem Land. It was sort of going between Arnhem Land and Ho Chi Minh City. Ho Chi Minh City per capita income was about $2,000 per person in Arnhem Land. It was much higher than that. Now, why was health so much better in Ho Chi Minh City and so much worse in, uh, in Arnhem Land? Um, you know, it, it really made me think about that. But obviously, the, you know, the social determinants of health uh, was, were critical. Uh, you know, people were not, were not allowed to go to, indigenous people were not allowed to go to school. Uh, until you know a few decades ago, um, and uh, you know that the consequence of, of, of it not being enculturated that it was normal to go to university, for example, no one on Groot Island had ever been to university, uh, or to all the Tiwi Islands at that stage. Um, you know that the impact is is severe. So, look, I think it's super complex, but um, you know at, at the end of the day, uh, we have to um, get our fellow Indigenous Australians as far as possible. Uh, in terms of education, year 12, and then into university, those, that's the only way things are going to change. Um, uh, I, I, and, you know, we, it, 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 it's one person at a time. Uh, one of my colleagues at university, uh, Kelvin Kong, uh, he's, become the, he was, he, he, he's become the first Indigenous surgeon in Australia. You know, that in itself is a, a tremendous achievement, but that is also an inspiration to other people to say, well, you know, you can do it too. So, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on, but at the end of the day, it's about engagement in society and access to education and educational achievement. And that'll result in change, I think. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think it, it, it does, um, you know, start in those formative years, if we can sort of build up that education there, for sure. Um, so, Dr. Walsh, we just wanted to ask just a sort of wrap-up question. Um, do you have any quick sort of words of advice or wisdom for medical students who want to um, explore their passion for global health and sort of ways to do that? I think uh, start early. Uh, say yes to everything at the beginning. Uh, do an MPH or some kind of public health. Go volunteer somewhere. Get a mentor. Uh, and, and, and really go for it. Uh, don't say, oh, I don't have the experience or I'm not ready. You've just got to go and do it. Uh, so don't hold back. There's a whole world out there. You don't know what you don't know. Um, so really, I, I wouldn't, I'd, I'd really just 
if you want to do it, just go and do it now. Start now. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Walsh. That was incredible and, and really inspiring. And I think both Jess and I are now like ready to go and just try any opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our podcast is so excited to be sponsored by OSCEBank. OSCEBank is an amazing resource designed for medical students by Australian doctors. It provides over 180 stations for you to study efficiently for your OSCE preparations. What me and Erica love about OSCEBank is that there's an option to both study solo as well as in an interactive live group. This allows you to study not only in your own time, but also with a group of friends, allowing you to more efficiently prepare for your OSCE exams. Both Erica and I have had um, an amazing time studying with OSCEBank and I know personally it's really helped me with my end of year exams. Thanks to OSCEBank for sponsoring this video.